And our passage this morning is in Ephesians 4. We're at the end of chapter 4. Last week I had said we were at the end of chapter 4. I don't know why I said it that way, but obviously I was wrong. This week we're at the end of the chapter, verses 17 through 32. And as you're turning and finding our text for the morning, young Christians, young theologians, what should you wear when you come to church? And what should you wear when you're at home or at school or at a friend's house or anywhere? What should you wear? That's what I want you listening for this morning. This is the good news given to us through Paul the Apostle, the servant of Jesus the Savior. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding... They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Pray with me. Oh Lord, if only we could take these things given to us week after week and stack them up. And then we would be built up in the faith, in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus. And we would be lifted up out of our routine error, our unbelief, our waywardness. And again, we ask you to open our ears and open our hearts. Reach into us and stir in us that we may hear what you have for us in these verses. The good news that calls us out of who we are, left to ourselves, and makes of us something new in Jesus the Savior. How to look more like you, to think and to feel, to move more like you, Lord Jesus. And Paul seems to say it's ours. He seems to say in these verses, we can have more of just that thing. So hold it out to us. Give it to us. Through the Spirit, pour it out 
and sealing us to belong to you and to you alone. And if you'll do all of these things, we will give you thanks and we ask it in the Father and in the Son and in his Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? This group of verses is Paul's treatise on nature. And when Paul is talking about nature, he's not talking about the brute forces of the universe. He's talking about something much more localized, something much more close. He's talking about the brute forces of the heart. That is, the unhidden and the defining loves of our hearts that come out in everything we do. Biblically, those loves are drawn in one of two directions, either toward the things God loves and gives or away from the things God loves and gives. And that's what Paul writes about here, but he does it in a jarring way. He says, step out of your nature. Don't be a Gentile, even if you are one. You have to be ungentiled. That's the sermon in the verses, or at least that's the direction of the sermon. It's not actually a sermon until we get to the good news. But that's where Paul's headed. When Paul says, don't be Gentiles anymore, he's saying, don't be pagan anymore. And Ephesus is a pagan city. It sits in Turkey, which was then Asia Minor, but it was Hellenist. It was Greek in culture, which means that in Ephesus, the Greek gods and goddesses were worshipped. The gods of Greek mythology were the gods and goddesses who were venerated. And you know mythology. These are the gods and goddesses of sex scandals and power plays and murder plots. It makes for fantastic stories and a terrible religion. Because the gods are no better than men and in fact they're worse than men. And they cannot sanctify people. They leave people stuck where they are. If humanity wants help, it won't find any help from the pantheon. Humanity is on its own, and the gods can only be outmaneuvered. The patron goddess of the city of Ephesus at this time is Artemis. And by this time, she's turned into a fertility goddess. So wherever you went through the city and saw her image, her statue put up, it was like a peep show carved in stone. And her worship was pornographic. It was tremendously popular with the people. And so Paul is writing, you can't worship these gods. With gods like these, dancing with the devil is a waste of energy and time. And so you Ephesian Christians, you have to live in your city and not quite fit. You have to live in Ephesus without living like an Ephesian. Don't be a Gentile. Which leaves us with a bit of a problem because in other letters Paul has written... Don't be Jewish either. Now, keep in mind that Paul is never bashing cultures. He's warning against mindsets and natures and the wrong pulls of the heart. So, when Paul says in certain letters, don't be Jewish, he's really saying, don't think godliness is attainable by effort and rules. Don't think that we can reduce being godly and holy to method. Using religious law and observance to think 
good of ourselves instead of using it to see our desperate need for God to come crashing in to save us from us. The law is not about self-advancement, Paul says. It was never about self-advancement. It was always about coming up short in the loves of our hearts, but finding that God would never come up short on grace. So now here in the letter to Gentile Christians in the city of Ephesus, when Paul says you can't be Gentile anymore, he's saying you can't be lawless anymore. You can't do whatever you want. You can't presume upon grace. You can't act as if grace forgives, but doesn't want to transform you. Doesn't have any interest to call you to be, to make you to be something new and different. Paul's gospel anthropology, his understanding of who we are as people, was always two-sided throughout his letters. On the one hand, he would write, don't be lawish. And on the other hand, he would write, and don't be lawless. The trouble is, how do you tell someone not to be themselves? How do you say to someone, step out of your nature? There's an ancient West African fable about this. Years later, it was pulled into American pop culture. There was a musical version of the, of the fable written and recorded by the Nat King Cole trio about a monkey and a buzzard. Straighten up and fly right. But in the oldest version of the fable, it's a scorpion and a frog. And one day the scorpion comes to the frog and asks him to swim the scorpion across the river. And the frog is uncomfortable with the proposal. He keeps his distance and asks, Now why would I swim you across the river? You'll sting me. So the scorpion responds. Now why would I do that? I do that and we both drown. So reluctantly, but bowing to the logic, the frog agrees and the scorpion climbs onto his back and together they push off from the shore and halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog between the shoulders. And as they're both sinking, the frog says, but why? The scorpion says, it's my nature. Can a Gentile stop being a Gentile? Can you just walk away? That's what Paul tells us to do. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They think nothing of God and His holiness and His beauty and His love. And the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. There it is. There's nature. Our hearts imprisoned in these unhidden, defining loves. And they can't change themselves, these Gentiles. They're not able to do it on their own. They become callous, Paul writes. They can't feel what God loves and what He desires and what He knows to be good. And so in place of feeling what they should feel, they've given themselves up and they've normalized a life of sensuality. They're greedy to practice every form, every kind of impurity. Every time I read that verse, that one feels familiar to me. Look, the reason I'm a Christian is not because it makes sense. I'm a Christian because I need Jesus. 
I'm a Gentile through and through. And don't let the robe fool you. The only thing blacker than my robe is the heart I hide underneath it. And if you knew what was in my heart, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. Can I walk away from my own nature? Willem Merck is a Dutchman, and he was serving a life sentence in a British prison named St. Helena. It sits on a 47-square-mile island of volcanic rock. Merck made impressions, molds of the prison keys when the guards would carelessly leave their keys behind as they went to the restroom. And on the night of his escape, he left an audio tape of himself snoring in his cell. It's like something out of a Steve McQueen movie. And when he broke out of the prison, there was a boat waiting for him down on the shore. It wasn't a very good boat. It was made of driftwood and scraps of styrofoam, but it was a boat. During an exercise break, Merck had met an islander, and he paid the man $150 to make the boat and to outfit it. So the islander had supplied it with 15 cans of beans and a can opener and a fishing rod. He had no compass. For a map, he had only a page torn out of the atlas in the prison library. And he set sail and drifted for 2,000 miles and came ashore on the coast of Brazil. And he ran to the Dutch embassy and pleaded amnesty. And he was repatriated in his home nation of Holland, a free man. He escaped his sentence. He escaped his prison. But he didn't escape his heart. That he took with him. He carried it with him. And I can't escape mine. I carry mine with me. My own futile mind, my own dark understanding, my own self-imposed exile from the beauty of God my galvanized hardness against the love of Jesus. I'm the scorpion, and my nature is deceitful and deadly. But the gospel is, the gospel is, Jesus can change my nature. The gospel is, Jesus can give me a new nature. The gospel is, Jesus gives me his nature. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says down in verse 20, this isn't the way you learned Christ. And then down in verse 30. In fact, Jesus has poured His Spirit into you. He has sealed you. You belong only to Him now. He is your love. And then back up into verse 24. And He's giving to you a new nature in His own likeness. You keep reverting to the old way, Paul says, instead of living in the nature of Jesus which He Himself has taught you and implanted in you. Now look, this is an amazing claim that Paul makes here. Maybe he's gone too far this time. Maybe this is, more than anything else in Scripture, what we find most impossible to believe. Because we believe that you can restore an old, run-down building. You can take it down to the footings and rewire it and re-plumb it, put new windows, new doors, new fixtures, new everything in it. You can refurbish a classic automobile that's gone to rust. 
you can bring an entire neighborhood or city back to life. It can be revived and gentrified after it's fallen off. Homes can be remodeled. Antiques can be restored. Nations can be rebuilt after years of recession or when fault lines slide against each other. But people, we actually believe that we can remake people. People can be transformed and be made different. That's the hard one. That's the one that we trip over. Maybe, maybe it's that we believe other people can be remade, but not me. I live with me. And change for me is painful and slow. And the people I live with, it's more painful and slower with them. People can be remade, really? Maybe it's not that we don't believe that we can be changed. Maybe it's that we don't like the way it comes about, that's all. We'd like it to be an even swap, the old nature for a new one. The way you turn in a car when the lease is up and you get a new one with that new car smell. Somehow the new life, the new heart, the new mind, the new nature never quite have that new model smell to them. It's always a Jekyll and Hyde affair with the old monster rising up to the surface all too often. And the new man or woman of grace and restraint and control overcoming the beast far too little. And Paul himself even admits to it in his letter to the Romans. I'd be a liar if I didn't say the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do I do. The old nature comes on like the past we thought we'd left behind. Somehow it always manages to catch up with us. But Jesus can turn all of our limitations inside out. You can't understand the Christian life without the theology that Paul gives us here. And that's why I think so few Christians understand the Christian life. You can't understand the gospel without this. You can't grasp What Jesus descended to take away from us. What he descended to take us away from. And you can't understand what he ascended in conquest to give us. Apart from the theology Paul outlines in this section of verses. And you can't understand the ministry of Jesus to sinners. Without Paul's old man, new man doctrine. This is it. It all hangs on this. Jesus came to do all the putting off and all the putting on before we were ever called to it. Jesus descended because Adam fell. So Jesus climbed down into Adam's fall. Jesus came to put off Adam's old man of unbelief and failure and to put on the new man of faithfulness and restoration. Jesus was born into Adam's humanity without ever wearing Adam's nature, his twisted, wrongly disposed heart. So where Adam turned away from God's word of life and truth, and where Adam tried to make a version of truth for himself and he lost life in the process, Jesus treated God's word Very differently, he treated it like deep lungs full of air he had to breathe. He treated it like the food he had to eat or he would starve. 
Adam turned the garden of worship into a wasteland of sin. And so Jesus trudged out into Adam's desert to withstand hard, delicious temptations for 40 days. And he turned the wasteland back into a garden of worship waiting to explode in full bloom. Adam fell to all of the serpent's sugared lies and Jesus saw through every last one of them. And he outplayed the old snake so well that Satan couldn't bear to be in his presence. Being around Jesus who loved righteousness and holiness for Satan was like a mortal threat. It was as if Jesus was saying, you know, one of these days I'm going to skin you and wear you like a belt. Adam died on the tree of God's grace, and so Jesus died on the tree of Adam's disgrace. And Adam grew old in shame. The years closed in on him, and he kept looking tearfully to the east, remembering the Eden he lost. And finally, shame fell over him like a curtain in death. And Jesus joined Adam and climbed under his curtain for three days. And then he threw the dank blanket off and he left it lying on the floor of the tomb and he walked free of the death heaviness of shame. And after all that, Jesus ascended. The first part of chapter 4 says, Jesus ascended higher than the heavens. He went beyond the heavenly places. And why would he do that? Why would he ascend so high? It's to erase the reality that Adam had fallen so deep. Jesus kept putting off Adam, and no one was happier about it than Adam himself. And in verse 24, Paul says, that's your story, that's your legacy now. In verse 24, Paul says, the resemblance of Adam is fading in you, and the likeness of Christ in you grows sharper. I think this is the lost art of discipleship. This is what Christians don't understand anymore. Our problem is we're not looking for growth. We're looking for shortcuts. We're looking for growth spurts and gimmicks and fads and podcasts and books and programs because we've forgotten the gospel of putting off Adam through Christ and putting on Jesus in his place. And in this section, Paul takes his idea of speaking truth in love from verse 15, and he pushes it deeper and farther. In this section, Paul says, you're not just speaking it anywhere, anymore. Now you're wearing truth in love. It's not just your language. Now it's your uniform. It's incarnate in your body, just like Jesus wore truth in love in his own body. And then he gives us a list of applications a list of putting off and putting on down in verses 25 through 32. Take off lies and excuses. Don't speak like the man and the woman and the serpent in the garden anymore. Speak with the truthfulness of Jesus. It's a truthfulness that not even the cross could unravel. Speak like that. And be angry, but don't be volcanic. If you're going to get angry, just don't be ruled by it. Put off your anger instead of unleashing it. And by the way, what do you have to be angry about anyway if you have been loved by God through the Son? And if you're a thief, 
Stop stealing. God's given you all things in Christ. And from that generosity, contribute instead of taking. Move from the smallness of heart to an enlargement in the mercy of God. And no corrupting talk. Speak wisdom and gospel. Words are powerful. They go deeper than the skin. They go all the way to the soul. So stop tearing down with them and build up in grace instead. And stop practicing bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander and malice. You thought those were emotions that you hid fairly well. We can all see them. Stop practicing them. Practice forgiveness instead. If Christ has come and you are in him and he's the new man, you can't continue in the way of Adam. You have a new nature to practice in Jesus now. I remember a particularly dark time for me, struggling with my sin, drowning in it, feeling like I was going to die under it. And in torment and agony, on a sleepless night, I was looking for some glimmer of hope, searching for just a glimpse of the good news to give me back my breath. And here it was, this is the passage I found. Paul's old man, new man theology in these verses saved my life. Paul's gospel practice of putting off and putting on stopped my choking sobs. And I remember thinking as I read through the verses, it can't be as easy as that. It just can't be that easy. That's all there is to it. I went back through the verses maybe a half dozen more times, looking for the catch. There's got to be a catch. And at the end of it, I couldn't find one. At the end of it, I had to conclude, it's just that easy. But you prove it for yourself. Go back through verses 25 through 32. You see any complicated gymnastics there? You see any difficult spiritual acrobatics Paul's calling for? But how? How do we do it? How do we put the old man off, the old woman off? How do we put the new self on? That's always our question. How do we do it? Listen, you don't get to ask the question, how, anymore. Paul makes no allowance for that question in this group of verses. You don't get to ask how any more than Peter when Jesus told him to get out of the boat and walk to him across the white caps. When you ask how, you're wanting to trust in your strength and ability and no longer trusting in the strength and ability of Jesus. But in these verses, it's all straightforward. Jesus has given to you his nature by his spirit, so put off Adam and put on Christ. The countdown continues. We're three weeks away from Easter. And we're always living in the joy and the power of the resurrection, whether we know it or not. But if you really want to amplify your celebration of the holiday this year, then do what Paul's calling for. Just try this. Put off and put on. This is a practice of the enjoyment and an embrace of the resurrection of Jesus. Holy Week, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, the still nausea of that awful Saturday in between... And the shock of Easter Sunday morning, they all drive us to this. The gospel is the power to put off Adam with Jesus. The gospel is the power to put on 
more of the life of Jesus himself. You have to face yourself in the mirror. You have to look into your own eyes, the windows on your soul, and you know your heart. You know what darkness and what wrong and what vestiges of the old man and the old woman you still carry with you. And you love and you nurse and keep alive. And you know what you have to put off. And if you don't, if you're too numb to know it right now, ask someone. And ask someone not safe. Someone whose answer you'd really rather not hear. What oldness did Jesus die to joyfully strip away from you? And you know what's missing. You know what's longed for in you. What newness you should put on to replace the old. And again, if you can't find it for yourself, ask someone. What newness did Jesus rise to give you to wear? Keep taking off the one and keep putting on the other. Without this lost practice... The work of Jesus is nice, but it's not powerful. Without this lost practice, the work of Jesus is sweet, but it's stuck in time and it can't reach us. That's not what you believe, is it? In Paul's words in these verses, he says, that's not the way you learned Christ. You don't believe that. Live what you believe. Yesterday morning, Jennifer and I were sitting in our front room and we were drinking tea and coffee and we were talking and reading a book together. And it was early. We get up before dawn in our house. And at 7.30, I looked out the front window and I noticed this activity on the front lawn. Our neighborhood was still asleep. Everything was quiet outside. But a child close to me was out. And she laid out in a perfect line orange cones on the front lawn. I watched her pace them off and measure the distance between them precisely. And then she disappeared around the back of the house and came back out front a minute later with a soccer ball tucked under her arm. And she slapped it down on the turf. And she took a deep breath. And without anybody else coaching her or pushing her or encouraging her, cheering her on, without anybody desiring something for her that she didn't desire for herself. She went to work. First it was her left foot. She would only use her left foot, moving through the cones, weaving in and out, all the way down and all the way back. And then it was the right foot, only the right foot, turning this cone and then the cone after it and the cone after that, down and back. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. For 30 minutes without stopping, without breaking. I watched how intently she worked at it. She was willing herself to move from being a spectator, an admirer of the game, to becoming a practitioner, a technician. She was training herself to see and to think and to feel and to move inside the game. And I realized that's it, that's what we're missing. We never just grow. We always grow out of something and we always grow into something. We're redeemed away from something and redeemed into something else. 
So put off Adam with Jesus and put on more of the life of Jesus himself and wear truth and love. That's what he's given you to wear. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, Lord Jesus, the old cannot remain with you. It's worn out and it's worthless. And it's not worthy of your wearing it. You burst it at its seams. And now strip the old garments away from us and dress us in beauty and grace that flow from hearts renewed in the love and salvation of Christ the Redeemer. And at your table with bread and wine, give us your gospel of the old life put off strenuously sometimes, but really and personally put off and put away. And in bread and wine, give to us the gospel of the new life won for us. With the bread, reveal to our hearts the things that we have to shed and strip away. And with the sweetness of the wine, show us what is our inheritance in you, what we are now given to wear And give to us the grace of loving and not resenting this exchange. And teach us to pray. Ah, we're so bad at praying. Teach us to pray in the same way that you taught your disciples to pray. In the same way that you've taught your church, built through your disciples. In age after age, teach us to pray with your heart and your words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.